so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. We we should qualify this is Seth Brown. Uh, half of the SBC power couple in North Carolina. <laughs> Dude, no kidding. No, sir. That's hashtag fake news. <laughs> oh, man. See, that's good. That's the first time we've laughed in yeah. 45 minutes of recording the podcast. So that's good. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today are my faithful co-host, as always, Lindsay Nicolay. Happy New Year, everyone. It's already been a long one. It's already been a long one. And also with us is the uh, just awesome Brent Leatherwood. Hello, everyone. It, It feels like maybe we're still in 2020. Like January 2021 is turning out to be the 13th month of 2020. Yeah, that's, you know, that's well said, Brent. And honestly, it's weird because this is not the podcast we hope to bring you. We were very excited about coming back and and bringing you a new year, new things kind of podcast where we're optimistic and forward looking and had just fun talking about good things going on that we're excited about or looking forward to this year. But instead of that, we are finding ourselves recording this on Thursday, and we are finding ourselves just in the midst of a very, very heavy week after the events uh, at the Capitol yesterday. And we plan to to get into all of that and have an extended conversation uh, with one another. And also, we're going to bring in Seth Brown, who is the executive editor of the Biblical Recorder, which is the uh, Baptist state newspaper in the state of North Carolina. I mean, he is maybe one of the most talented Christian journalists uh, in the business today. And so we're really looking forward to uh, that conversation. Lindsay, why don't you go ahead and tell us, uh, before all of this broke out, what, what was on your ERLC uh, slate to talk about this week? Well, uh, you know, I'm kicking off this 2021 podcast year with an internet bang. So we'll see if we if I even make it through my segment because my internet is going in and out. And pretty soon Obviously, one of the most important... So we should say that yes, when Lindsay drops baby. off the podcast for good, it's not the internet; it's the it's the birth of a child. <laughs> yes, it's yes. I have a week left officially, and ooh, it cannot come fast enough. So the most important piece that we'll be talking about later today actually didn't go up on our site, but it's by uh, Dr. Moore, Russell Moore, and it is written about the events that happened at the Capitol on Wednesday, and I know that we will discuss that. But the world also continues to turn in some other ways. And we know that Christians need to be equipped in many different areas. And so the first piece that we have today is by Jordan Wooten, who was an intern of ours. And actually, coincidentally, this uh, this whole uh, rundown of content is like attack of the J's, all J names. So Jordan Wooten, he has uh, an article titled, Three Ways Smartphone Usage Can Distort Our Perceptions, which actually is probably very appropriate for what happened at the Capitol, Um, Habits, Theology, and Christian Discipleship. And so he talks about um, a New Yorker article that was published 
with just a stark photo. So it was the magazine's 90th anniversary cover, and the issue depicted a man holding a phone uh, with his head facing down. So he was ignoring the cloudy sky and the flight of a butterfly, and his thumbs were ready to be texting, and he was uh, what Jordan phrases as bent in on himself. And so he talks about the way that our smartphones and what we use our smartphones for cause us to do this, to forget the world around us, to forget the creator above us, to forget our neighbors next to us, and to merely uh, think about ourselves. And then that distorts all of these perceptions that we have. It's a really important article, like I said, especially in light of things that have happened uh, on Wednesday. And really, as believers, we have a responsibility to develop habits that that enable us not to be shaped by our smartphone usage uh, or by our view of ourself, but that uh, start with being shaped by God and His Word, by our Creator, and then trickle down to everything else. I was really glad to see this piece from Jordan Lindsay. One, Jordan is a stellar intern. He's somebody that I get to work with very closely. Two, like I've been on my own. Uh, Megan could attest to this. I've been on my own like cell phone journey. Uh, she actually inspired it. It's kind of funny. Uh, just talking about trying not to be on my smartphone nearly as much and to really, really reduce the amount of time I spend on things like social media. And it's actually been really, really good for my soul and totally, totally blown up this week. So here's to renewing that uh, that effort in the coming weeks. But I think this is, I think this is really important because it's something that it's not just me. I know so many people who not only struggle with their smartphones, but then also just social media and the way that it, like, like he says, distorts our perceptions of the world. Yes. What a phrase for the generation cell phone journey. (laughs) May the Lord take us all on a cell phone journey that will detach us more from our cell phones and attach us more to abiding in Christ. So the next grouping of J's that we have as authors is actually Jordan again with Josh Wester, because we have to talk about a piece that Josh is involved in when we're talking about the podcast, especially at the top of the year. But this is a new series that I'm really excited about. It's an interview series where Josh and and, uh, Jordan and then then another intern named Andrew talked to some authors about some really influential books just to help equip us as believers to deal with various issues and subjects. So this first one is um, Why We Need the Tenderness of Our Savior, an interview with Dane Ortland about Gentle and Lowly, which you've heard us talk about. We've heard so many amazing things about this book. Um, I cannot wait to read it. And they open up this article saying this, Christianity isn't complicated, but it is difficult. And if anything, the last year and uh, this beginning of this year has made us realize in a special way just how broken our world truly is. But whether we're facing a pandemic or relative paradise, every Christian needs Jesus, not just for salvation, but for life. And so Dane just answers questions about Jesus's gentleness and his lowliness and how he deals deals with us in a humble manner, even in the midst of our sin. And I would really encourage you to go check that out. Again, this is the first in the series. We'll have a couple coming, usually one each week. And I think it will be really, really encouraging to you. And then finally, our last J author here is another of one of our colleagues, Jason Thacker, with three ethical issues in technology to watch for in 2021. So we talk about how Jason's um, emphasis is, is in the area of technology. And he says that it's far too easy to take a myopic view of technology and the ethical issues surrounding its use in our lives 
It's not a subset of issues he encourages us that only technologists and policymakers should engage. Instead, Christians need to be wise to how we use technology and these various tools in our lives, especially because so many of the issues relate to our understanding of our neighbor's human dignity as being grounded in the Imago Dei and the image of God being created in his image. So again, he runs down three of these issues, and it's really helpful because they would be things that truthfully would not be on my radar. Even if I were aware of them, I probably would choose not to pay attention to them. The good news is, is that Jason pays attention to them for us and then writes easy to digest blurbs about them. So I would encourage you to check that out as well. And Along with that, we have other videos. Um, we have other articles that will equip you in this new year to, we pray, walk faithfully with the Lord. Josh and Brent, that's your look at ERLC.com. That takes us to what is normally like our culture section for the week, where we have this long cultural rundown. But as I mentioned at the top of the show, in light of everything that is that has transpired yesterday and, and the scene that we watched uh, at the United States Capitol and with everything that was involved in that, we thought that the best thing that we could do today is just spend some time talking to one another before we talk to Seth to just kind of reflect uh, and see, uh, you know, just to express our thoughts and to see uh, what, if anything, we we need to know and, and should learn from what we've just watched. So, Brent, I want to I want to start with you. Uh, you were a in your career, you were a staffer on Capitol Hill. You were in the same uh, same hallways and same rooms yesterday that you watched uh, be taken over by not just protesters, but but what is rightly called uh, or, or who are rightly called insurrectionists. And so, maybe just tell us a little bit about like what what it was like to watch that. What what thoughts that you had as you were watching all of that transpire yesterday? I shared with you all, shared with the rest of the team this morning that honestly, I'm I'm. I'm still processing everything that we we witnessed on Wednesday. And like the the best analogy I think I can come up with is it it feels like I saw my uh my childhood home uh like robbed on live television and and ransacked on live TV. And like I'm, I'm just I, I feel like I'm I'm still dealing with the just emotions of that because I don't know this this helps me put this in perspective. Four people died yesterday in our nation's capital uh, because of events that took place in our nation's capital building. These events were nothing short of a rebellious insurrection in a wild attempt to prevent what is traditionally uh, just a procedural formality in, in finalizing the results of a presidential election. This should never happen. <laughs> <laughs> in, in, under any scenario, because the individuals that stormed Capitol Hill yesterday and ransacked the National Legislative Assembly of us as Americans, they did so because of wild conspiracy theories and baseless 
accusations. I say they're baseless because we know they're baseless uh, about this election because they have been brought into our courtrooms over 60 times and have lost 60 times. Uh, so we know that they're baseless. But yes, they, these people were, were, were stoked to this bowling point where they felt they had no other recourse but to essentially take over the Capitol building. And they overtook the, the barriers that had been put in place by the Capitol Police. Uh, they walked up the steps of the Capitol. Uh, they broke doors down. They broke windows. There are reports that there was, uh, there was gunfire, potentially from some of those folks who illegally entered the Capitol building. We now know that there definitely was gunfire because there was a rioter who was shot by Capitol Police and now died. I mean, this is, as former President George W. Bush said, this is the stuff out of a banana republic. And um, Josh, as you said, as, as somebody who worked there, who, who loved my time serving uh, the constituents that I was privileged to serve, uh, I, I remember walking through those hallways and, and I loved each and every time that I got to go on the House floor to be there and staff my boss, a, a former member of Congress. I remember walking through those doors yesterday that were barricaded <laughs> by furniture because people were fearing for the safety of their lives. You have to remember, I, I think I think we all get lost in the the the, the social media world uh, and and forget that there are real people with real lives. The the staffers that are there, the the members of the media that are in the press gallery. Uh, the other individuals uh, that are there as administrative staff of the Capitol building, uh, these people don't have uh, weapons that that they can fight back with because like who 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 in their right mind would ever think that that is something that is necessary? But they're having to hunker down uh, as as Capitol police. Uh, members of the the speaker's detail and the leadership detail are having to draw their weapons behind these barricades that are keeping the doors closed where the president of the United States enters to give the annual State of the Union address. Uh, this is a just this is a scene out of some horror novel, and it it never should have happened. It never should have happened. So let's let's walk through the events. The election takes place. Former Vice President Joe Biden wins. He wins by the same uh, amount that President Trump won in 2016. That he he called quote a landslide. So we should we should note that in the Electoral College he won by the same margin. Over the course of the next few weeks, President Trump. Uh, starts making these accusations that fraudulent votes occurred, which is fine. If, if you have reason to suspect that actual legal activity occurred, okay, prove it in a court of law. And they could not meet that requirement because out of the 61 times it has been brought 
they have lost 60 times. Then there started to be talk of rally in DC. As a matter of fact, the president even put out on his social media to rally in DC on January 6th, the 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 day where the final procedural hurdle uh, takes place for Congress to certify the, result, the results of the Electoral College, uh, come to DC for a rally because it's going to be wild. And the language only escalated from there. Uh, in the in the 24 hours preceding yesterday's events, uh, there was a, a rally that featured these conspiratorial voices uh, using, honestly, religious language that would be familiar to us as evangelicals, calling people to action, telling them that they needed to to essentially storm Capitol Hill to to prevent this formality from occurring, which is insane. And then the morning of yesterday, January 6th, a Save America rally, which again, uh, America is is not in need of of saving. Similar language was used to whip up the crowd. And this is what happened. This is the the result. It's disturbing to me personally because that's a place I used to work and have fond memories of what what I would submit was good work, working for a conservative member of Congress. But So it's disturbing to me personally, but it should be disturbing to all of us as Americans. Because this is this is this is not what happens after after an election. Even if you poured your heart and soul out uh, to reelect the the president and, and and worked hard, and believe you me, I've been on those campaigns. I've said it before on this campaign. I've been on the side of losing campaigns where you pour out everything. So I I get it if you are frustrated that you didn't come out on the winning side of this campaign. But you can't fall down these rabbit holes of thinking that America needs to, to be saved. And so therefore, you, you have to resort to, to violence. That should be unacceptable uh, for all of us who are participants in this democratic republic. Well, I have a couple of questions here and just answer for the person who maybe doesn't follow politics as closely or understand it as well as maybe you, Brent, and Josh do. But talk about some of the factors that led us here. And you kind of address this, Brent, but what makes it different than, say, you know, when in past elections, people on either side have claimed voter fraud, which has happened before? What should have been the proper recourse and why so out of hand? Yeah, I mean, I've been asking myself those very same questions. Looking at uh, what happened yesterday, I mean, I was glued to my television. As I mentioned, I was glued to my phone. I was just, you know, had a million phone calls and text messages and just trying to just wrap my mind around uh, how did we get here? And the truth is that for as long as most of us can remember, we've been we've been hearing the phrase that this is an incredibly fractious and polarized time. We've been told over and over again for years uh, that the nation has never been more polarized. And so when I look back over the events of, of my lifetime, I mean, the last time that we were experiencing a moment like this in terms of national crisis and an assault on our country and our democracy, it, it was September 11th. And I don't use that language to be hyperbolic. I'm honestly looking at what happened? I think that is the last time that our that our country was in this position. And so, 
to not get ahead of myself, to try to talk about like what are some of the things that led us here. One of those things is just the, the rise of tribalism. And I don't think there's any doubt that I can't I can't begin to present to you a, a full explanation. So what I would say is one of the things that, that is doubtless responsible for this is the rise of social media. And I'm not trying to cast aspersions at various social media platforms or companies, but I will say uh, all of us are aware, everybody listening to this podcast is aware of the fact that people tend to be much uh, they have much more courage when they're behind their keyboards than they do when they're face to face with people. I've mentioned it before on the podcast, but Mark Zuckerberg uh, years ago was talking about the fact that when Facebook first started blowing up, he actually thought it was going to be this incredible tool to reduce tribalism and bring people together because it was going to reduce these barriers. So you were going to be able to interact constantly with people who don't share your worldview and aren't like you. And that was supposed to like make you more. Um, tolerant and understanding and to have a better sense of why people who aren't like you and think differently than you do, why they are the way they are. But instead of that, uh, what he said was that Facebook actually ended up making tribalism so much worse because if you hold, uh, you know, if, if you tend towards some kind of extreme or radical views, whether they're to the right or to the left or whatever, being on social media makes it so much easier for you to find a tribe, a group of people who then can just inflame those passions with you, who can drive you toward your worst instincts. And you can, you know, you can find these uh, communities that that stoke extremism. And so that's that's kind of like a, a long answer. And then, you know, zooming forward to to what happened just since the election. I mean, what we have watched are grifters and opportunists, and demagogues. Take advantage of people. And on the podcast and at the URLC, we have been very, very careful because we understand. People care a lot about politics. Elections are important. Politics matter. And so we're not trying to antagonize anybody with the outcome of the election. We said right out of the gate uh, that there was no evidence of, of widespread voter fraud. There's always minor irregularities. That happens in every single election. But there was no evidence that this election was stolen or that it was somehow the outcome was fraudulent or that the wrong person was named president-elect. And in light of that, we have watched, and some of them are banned right now on social media and should have been banned weeks and weeks ago. We have watched people just to make money or just to make, you know, to, to be more famous or get more followers, say things they knew were not true to people who don't have all day to sort through facts and lies and told them over and over and over again that they voted for, that they contributed money to, that they campaigned for, that has delivered for them, told them that, that he was robbed. And the president himself advanced that narrative. It is difficult to describe how destructive that behavior really is, but we watched it in real time on the news yesterday. That's at least a part of it. You know, and I would add to that, you're, you're absolutely right, Josh, uh, in every national election, uh, there are instances uh, where there are regularities. I, I think the, the latest case I saw in Georgia was that there are, are two instances uh, where someone may have voted improperly or, or using someone else's name. One of those, I believe, is uh, a, a wife of, uh, a man who is now an invalid, uh, who cast a, a vote on his behalf. I believe that's it. So yes, in every national election that there will be some irregularities, but those are found and, and they are dealt with. And obviously, 
uh, in the aftermath of this election, we can say with confidence that there was no widespread fraudulent voting behavior. And to, directly to your point, Lindsay, the proper forum uh, for contesting those irregularities. A lot of states have some sort of investigatory process that is administered by the Secretary of State or the elections administrator uh, locally. Uh, and then if, if you don't get that resolved uh, to a degree of satisfaction, uh, you, can, you can make a legal case. And so, I mean, that, that, that is the process that has been utilized in previous elections. The, the problem is, is that those options have been utilized and exhausted here, and yet we're still supposed to believe <laughs> that this, is, this has happened. And it is driven, now it has driven certain people to think, well, if that's the case, then obviously I have to go and take over the, the capital uh, in some sort of crazy, treasonous madness. I mean, I... To, to stop I, a I just, process that was never going to change the outcome. Of the right, <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and so I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, we're, we're living, I mean, we, you know, I, we were hoping to talk about today on this podcast. Uh, I, I was hoping to talk to y'all, need to y'all a little bit about taking down your Christmas decorations early. Uh, and and it, <laughs> we can't even get to that. Uh, but I mean, look at some of the other events that, that happened over the course of, of the Christmas break. Here in Tennessee, in downtown Nashville, we had a gigantic RV bomb go off in the middle of our downtown. And the reports suggest it's because the individual responsible for that, who killed himself in, in the midst of it, was under the persuasion of, the, of some of the wildest conspiracy theories out there. And so he attacked an AT&T substation uh, located in, in downtown Nashville. I mean, this is just wild stuff that is motivating people to do increasingly heinous acts. And some of that same thinking uh, filtered into the, the action and informed the actions that we saw on Wednesday on Capitol Hill that should be repulsive and repugnant to any of us uh, who call ourselves Americans. I mean, you you know something has gone terribly wrong with the authoritative uh, leader of Turkey, uh, Erdogan, is expressing his disbelief about what is going on in American democracy. You know that something has gone completely off the rails if that's where we find ourselves. That's exactly right, Brent. And, you know, I think about Jonah Goldberg in his book, uh, Suicide of the West, talks about the, the social compact, the fact that our institutions, we talk about our democracy and our institutions and how important they are. These things are fragile, and they're based on the fact that the reason people have made so many comments about what happened with the Capitol Hill police, why were they not able to keep these protesters back? And I mean, first of all, if you just look at the sheer numbers, that was never going to happen. But the reason that we don't have at all times armed guards outside of the United States Capitol ready to shoot anyone who would forcibly break in or shoot thousands and thousands of people who, by the way, are Americans, is because 
what makes our society work is the social compact, is the fact that what it means to be an American is that we all agree that we are, we are different, we're diverse, we have different cultures, different backgrounds, different experiences, different religions, but we're all Americans. And we, and we live under one common government, and we live in one common nation, and we agree together to abide by the, the norms and institutions uh, that guide our civic life and society. Those things are fragile. We saw yesterday what happens when you take them for granted, how easily they can be disrupted. And so this is a time for us, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you, and you like the things that we say, I'm assuming very few of you hate listen to it. Uh, if you like the things that we say, our big, my, my biggest encouragement to you is this is a time to pull back from the brink. This is a time to back away from extremism. This is a time not to sow to your worst instincts, but to embrace the truth and love your neighbor. If you're a Christian, those are two things that you can definitely do to respond to this moment. You can embrace the truth and love your neighbor. So I feel like it's, well, I'm thankful for y'all's explanations. And uh, I just feel like it's important to say as a believer, as Christians, um, that we need to look at this from the spiritual aspect as well, that regardless of if it's politics or something else, or the left, when we make idols of these things, horrible things are revealed. And can lead us into temptation and sin. And the Psalms say that we become like that. Even if they're relatively good things, the political process is a good thing to be thankful for, but it's never meant to be idolized, nor is anyone who runs for that office. Those things can't sustain us or hold us up. And um, those idols, like the Psalms say, uh, we become like what we worship. And the only one who we're made to worship is the Lord. He's the only one who can transform us into, into purity. Everything else will corrupt. And so I just think it's revealing that, that the idols that we hold in our hearts, like Tim Keller says, you can identify those idols by what would make you angry or despairing if you were to lose it. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot of um, idolatry. And as leaders, we need to be willing, regardless of what side we're on, to look at our hearts and to see what it is that we're worshiping and how we're responding to these things, because that will reveal a lot of what's going on in our hearts. You know, Lindsay, what you're saying absolutely resonates with me. And it, it reminds me of Jeremiah 29, where we're called to seek the welfare of the city that we're in. And I just think that as Christians, we just need to, at a basic level, we need to acknowledge that obviously what we saw transpire in Washington this week is not <laughs> for the welfare of our nation's capital city. And we need to do better. The the, the paranoia that was loosed on the, the streets of, of Washington, D.C. this week, it, it needs to be rejected by all of us. And, and whether, whether we are uh, leaders in the church, uh, leaders in the public square, uh, folks who lead small groups, or, or just uh, just folks who are stewarding uh, a friendship forward, we need to reject what we saw. Not not just as Americans, and not just as as I said before, citizens in this republic, but just as Christians, uh, we need to we need to reject what we saw. And you know, I honestly, I believe this. The, the church, as Christians, we, we, we inherently know this. The church is the antidote 
to what we saw yesterday. Why? Because a healthy functioning church brings together people from vastly different backgrounds, people who who, who probably don't agree on, on anything <laughs> politically, but they come together under the name, the holy name of Jesus Christ. And we are called in Galatians 6 to bear one another's burdens and have community in doing so. That helps us to see the common humanity of those that we may uh, be opposed to uh, be on a policy level or, or, or even politically. Like we have got to see the Imago Day in our fellow humans and, and, and should, should do everything we can to make sure that the temperature is lowered right now and that nobody sees it as an acceptable option to resort to violence. You kind of echoed this, Brent, to speak a word of hope into the midst of this as well, because while it is discouraging for so many, while it is terrible and and awful, we, as those who trust in Christ, know of all people that it's not without hope. And we actually have an article coming out in a couple of weeks by... Um, Vice Presidents of the Good Book Company, which is a great resource for just solid biblical books out of the United Kingdom. And his article is geared toward kids, how to help kids walk through uncertainty. But as I was editing it, it was just so appropriate for us as adults to, in this moment, remembering as believers to expect that we live in a fallen world, that things like this will happen, uh, but it's not the end of the story, that that Christ is in control and that these things, they shouldn't lead us to be disillusioned with, because we see a lot of so-called Christians involved in these things, they shouldn't lead us to despair or be disillusioned with Christ, our Savior. They shouldn't lead us to be disillusioned with His church. They should lead us to, to look in our hearts, see the log in our own eyes, and then lead us back to the Word to recalibrate and see where we have where we have gone wrong, where we need to repent, where we need to obey. And they should lead us to prayer. I mean, it's easy to say. It's not always what I practice. But we're called to have hope, even in the times of despair, because we're not surprised by these fiery trials. We know that it's through many tribulations that you enter the kingdom of heaven. And so these times are an opportunity for the Lord to turn our turn to Him as believers and opportunity for His glory to be put on display. Honestly, that's the kind of gospel message that we needed because as Christians, even when we experience something so awful as what we watched yesterday, we know that Jesus is Lord, Christ is our only hope, and that no matter how dire or bad things might be in any given moment, that we can always, as the people of, of God, have hope uh, that He is not only providing for us a better future, but because of that better future that is promised to us, that we are able to walk through even the darkest days. And so I, I really appreciate uh, what you said there. So now we're about to talk to our friend, Seth Brown. Seth is an indispensable partner for us at the URLC. He is the executive editor of the Biblical Recorder, which is the Baptist state newspaper in the state of North Carolina. If you don't know what that is, stay tuned. You'll hear a little bit about what he does in his work. But Seth is, as I mentioned earlier, one of the best young journalists in the business today. And the fact that he does so as a Christian and leads this organization, he's just someone you need to know, and it will be great to hear from in light of all that we've been talking about. 
So Seth, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. We're excited uh, to to get a chance to talk to you, especially with the work that you're doing and all the things that you are covering, not just in Southern Baptist life, but in American life and the way that the uh, the church and the culture interact together. Could you, as we're getting started, though, would you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing in ministry right now? And while you're at it, would you tell us one thing that you, that you feel like God is teaching you in this season of your life? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thank you. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. My name is Seth Brown. I'm the executive editor of the Biblical Recorder, which is the uh, Baptist news outlet for North Carolina. Uh, I live here in, in Wake Forest with my wife and our three kids, and uh, we're members of Imago Day Church in Raleigh, and I've uh, been here since 2011. We're Mississippi natives originally, but I've uh, been in North Carolina since 2011. And so one thing I feel like God is teaching me in this season, uh, and it's difficult to kind of process the past you know, 10 or 12 months with COVID and everything that's gone on, but I feel like I've learned in a new way the importance of the local church as a gathered body, in particular, corporate worship. You know, I was a pastor for a while, and I knew intellectually and theologically the importance of the local church. But as we've lived through all these COVID restrictions and stuff, I feel like I've experienced a new way, um, really what that means. So, you know, you hear people say they attend church by watching it on TV. And, And I've heard that before. But honestly, never could really identify with anything like that. But, you know, after being stuck at home with COVID restrictions and, and church meetings being limited, uh, I feel like I've, I've gotten a new understanding of the temptations and the struggles of that. Sometimes it's nice to, you know, take sermon notes in your PJs with a cup of coffee. But I've, I've learned just how much I miss the, the smiles, the faces, the hugs, the handshakes of, of the people at Imago Day Church. Uh, week in and week out. And so, yeah, I feel like that's what that's what the Lord's been been teaching me recently. Such a true lesson, Seth. And, um, you know, like they say, you don't know what you have until it's gone or you don't appreciate it. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, all those cliches. But also, um, how much do we appreciate children's ministry? Because watching church from home with kids running around is a disaster. <laughs> Um, so regular listeners will know what this next question is about, what you're paying attention to in culture, which feels like a moot point because we are coming out of a tumultuous first week of 2021. So can you just riff a little bit for us on the events that you've witnessed here at the beginning of 2021 and, and how you're paying attention to them and how you're thinking about them? Yeah, absolutely. So in in my work in news media, obviously we pay attention to trends and and fads and how people are engaging news media, how people are consuming information. You know, that's always something that we're paying attention to. And, um, you know, in years past, what we saw as problems sometimes seem funny. Journalists make jokes about, oh, you better tighten up that opening paragraph because, you know, no one reads past the first few lines. You know, people read a headline and and before they're even done, they're firing off stuff on social media, you know, comments and such. But I would say in the past few years, uh, and especially in the past 24 hours, like we have seen how dangerous that can become. Uh, It's, it's just, it's not funny anymore. You know, I'm, I'm very concerned at how people are, are consuming information. Uh, I'm very concerned at, at 
people's ability, and I mean specifically like in evangelical circles as well, people's ability to discern what is true and what is false and understand the world around them because people respond based on the reality that they perceive, right? And and we have seen that that can spill into some very dangerous environments. Yeah. When you said it's not funny anymore, man, that could not be more, that could not be more true. Yeah. Thank you for those wise words. So look, uh, you mentioned you, you lead the biblical recorder. Uh, you've, you've been there, uh, almost two years now. So can you talk to us a little bit about the role of faith-based journalism and, and why it's so important right now? When I think about faith-based journalism, I, I think about two different angles. If you'll, um, you know, forgive me. I want. I want to kind of answer the question twice. First is from the big picture. You know, I, I think faith-based journalism is very important because Christians care about things like truth and beauty. You know, and, and journalists are here to to capture snapshots of the humanity around them, right? To 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 let people see, you know, the joy and the pain and the the fears and the hopes of their neighbors, and what a great place for Christians to enter and, and help their neighbor. You know, we have the tools to help our neighbors know what truth is, know what beauty is, understand that this is a, a, a good creation created by God that has been marred by sin, you know, but that, that there's a story of redemption here that Christians can help, can use opportunities through journalism to tell the story of how God is is redeeming his creation through his son, Jesus. And so from a big picture perspective, like I think faith-based journalism is incredibly important and and Christians in particular should not shy away from from journalistic professions that that Christians should engage them, you know, with, with all of the tools and resources that we have in a biblical worldview. Now, the second way I would answer that is a bit more specific, uh, zoomed in on you know, what we are doing in a denominational context as as a biblical recorder, as a Christian news outlet. In Southern Baptist life, everything is based on partnerships. You know, there, there's no pope, there's no hierarchy. No one can force a church to do this or that. You know, we we link arms together as Southern Baptists. We, we pool our, our time, our talent, our money voluntarily by choice. We do that because we trust each other. We do that because we trust that uh, we share some common convictions and a common mission. And that trust has to have a baseline of reliable information. You know, if we don't have shared facts, how are we ever going to trust each other? If we don't know, if we feel like we're in the dark, how are we going to trust each other? So I feel like that goes it goes right to the heart of of our Christian denomination, you know, called the Southern Baptist Convention or Baptist State Convention of North Carolina. And the Biblical Recorder was created specifically for that kind of environment. They, they literally said when they were founding it in 1833 that they were doing this because uh, it would help promote cooperation among the churches. They needed a shared source of information. So as a, as a faith-based journalistic outlet, we see our role in that as very specific, and that, that original vision still survives today. I mean, when we think about our work, we think about what, what do churches need to know 
in order to work together for the Great Commission. And, and that's sort of a framework that, that we bring to what we do. So we want to promote trust among our churches so that they will uh, work together. Well, we're thankful uh, for people like you in uh, journalism. And uh, you're one of the go-to sources for news about the Southern Baptist Convention. And I'm sure you have that description on your uh, Twitter handle, just in case anybody's <laughs> wondering. <laughs> and uh, one of the it's things absolutely, you... But it's absolutely true, though, right? I mean, it's 100% accurate. Go-to news source. <laughs> so in case you're looking for something to update your Twitter handle to, that, that is good. Noted. But you've done significant reporting on the QAnon conspiracy theory. And this probably harkens back to, to the second question and then actually the last question. But why is that something that you focused so much on? Yeah, so it came on my radar really before it was even called QAnon. You know, there was a kind of a precursor to QAnon called Pizzagate. And, and if you don't know what that is, you know, seek out a place to look for it. It's, it's too it's too long for me to try to describe here. But um, it, it was a, an instance where a man walked into a pizzeria with a rifle based on a baseless conspiracy theory that he had read online. And uh, that that caught my attention, you know, that something something people are saying in forums online have led this person to literally pick up guns and and be ready to harm someone. And that man happened to be from Salisbury, North Carolina. But so it came on my radar. I began to kind of track, okay, there, there's some pretty high-powered political conspiracy theory things floating around on the internet. But it was just kind of a personal interest of mine <laughs> at the time. I wasn't, you know, seriously researching it. But, you know, fast forward, when I, when, when I first saw that, it was in maybe 2017. And then, you know, fast forward a couple years into 2019, 2020, I began to see a, a growing volume of conspiracy theory ideas shared among my networks on social media, you know, personal networks, people that I've known from uh, churches and other ministries. And, and I even began to see pastors and other church leaders share things that were baseless, you know, no evidence, um, very provocative political type of information. That's when it really began to concern me because one of the, so, so the basic elements of QAnon are that there's this cabal of leftist elite politicians and celebrities that are out to take over the country, some would even say the world, and they are engaged in things like pedophilia and child sex trafficking and, you know, all of the most disturbing things you could ever make up about someone, you know, that, that gets blamed on this, this secret cabal. Well, when I think about that, and I think about what Southern Baptists care about, you know, we, we as a convention just came out of a lengthy, hard, difficult season talking about sex abuse among our churches. And, and we've made some very powerful statements about that. Your organization, the ERLC, led in that effort in many ways. And that, and that is something I think Southern Baptists actually deeply care about. I think it's something that we should care about. I think it's something that we should speak about clearly. You know, child sex abuse is wrong and, and it should not be tolerated in our churches. And we should do everything we can to, to protect victims of, of sex abuse. 
to me, it's unthinkable that we would ever let those genuine convictions, that genuine voice become entangled with fanatical conspiracy theories. You know, I, I don't want when the outside world looks in at, at, to Southern Baptist life and when we say child sex abuse is wrong, I don't want them to think <laughs> we're wacky conspiracy theorists. You know, I, I want to disentangle what we read online that is baseless and what our genuine convictions are that are based in reality. And so one, like once that burden kind of fell on me, you know, like in a personal way, I just thought I, I can't help but not write about this, make sure our churches understand, you know, what QAnon is, what some of these conspiracy theories are saying and, and why they're wrong and why we shouldn't, why we shouldn't tolerate them or participate in, in spreading these things. I'm so thankful that you've been uh, consistently following this and, and researching it, Seth, because, I mean, I, I think after the events of this week, uh, unfortunately, more and more people are, are going to need to know the truth about these wild online conspiracy theories like QAnon. And so I'm, I'm thankful that we have someone like you researching it and publishing reports about it. So, you know, that's just the latest example for our, our last question here about how this is such a polarized, uh, divided and, and fractured time in American life. And unfortunately, some of those divisions, uh, they show up in the church. But, you know, for our podcast, we, we, we do like to try and end with some good news uh, and on an optimistic note. So, uh, could you tell us a few of the things that you might be concerned about, uh, as well as some of the things that are making you optimistic about the future of the church? Yeah, so I'll, I'll just say this as sort of a conclusion to my previous comments. You know, what, what we saw on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol was kind of the, the thing I was most afraid of with some entanglement with QAnon. You know, I, I'm looking at images of violent protesters at the U.S. Capitol. And, and among those images, you see flags, T-shirts, signs of, you know, QAnon, of um, you know, all manner of <laughs> conspiracy theory type material. And right beside them, you see crosses, Christian flags, you know, people with Christian messages on their shirts. And that's exactly what I'm what I've been afraid of is that that our message, you know, our our gospel, you know, the thing that, that we hold up as supremely important, our, our message to the world, that that would be confused with the, the evil that that we see with, with events like that. And so that, again, that is deeply concerning to me and, and it's disturbing. And I suspect that um this isn't going away. Uh, conspiracy theories don't just disappear. They just evolve and, and keep going. And so uh, I think we still have a lot of work cut out to make sure that, um, that we as Christians have a clear witness to the world that is, that is not stained by, you know, baseless conspiracies. Now, <laughs> I love that you want to end on hope. I think it's a wonderful thing. Um, and, and I would love to make some comments about that. I actually received a similar question from a journalist a few weeks ago. Uh, she was asking me about polarization in America and how we don't really have shared voices anymore. You know, there are very few authorities in, in our culture that can speak across political divides and other sorts of 
um, societal divisions. And one of the things that I, that I told her that brings me a lot of hope is that uh, when I look at, at pastors and church leaders that are invested in their communities, I think there, there is a bright, a bright ray of hope there because many times we don't trust each other across political divides or racial divides or you know, whatever it may be. Uh, we don't feel loved by people on the other side, and, and we don't show love towards people on the other side. But there are so many pastors and, and church leaders who are invested in the lives of their communities. And so it's very hard for someone to say to a pastor, you know, if, if he truly is serving his community, uh, you don't care about me or you don't love me. When, when most of these guys can say, look, I was there, you know, in your living room weeping with you the night your mother died. I was there holding your hand in the hospital you know, after your car wreck, I, I was there. How, like, they have been demonstrating sacrificial love to their people, and, and and not just to the people like in their congregation, but even into their communities. And that just gives me a lot of hope that that many of our pastors and church leaders still have the relational capital in their communities to speak truth and to speak love and to bring people together. Man, again, that's just. That's exactly right. And it's, it's so helpful for us to hear on, you know, just kind of the theme of your whole interview, talking about the uh, thing that you're learning and appreciating about the local church and about the fact that, you know, I, I keep thinking, especially in light of all that we experienced in 2020 with quarantine, the importance of the fact that God made us as embodied creatures to experience real relationships with real people face to face and breaking down some of this uh, division just through uh, these kinds of, of personal connection and relationships. I think all of that is. I think all of that is important. I especially think also that your your work trying to bring uh, light and clarity uh, to what something like QAnon, which is a conspiracy theory that is influencing uh, segments of the church. And so, look, we're just Seth. We're so grateful for the good work you're doing in terms of providing reliable journalism that that speaks to Christians and tells them the things that they need to know. And so, man, we just want to say thank you for your ministry and thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you guys for having me. Well, we really enjoyed that conversation with Seth. And honestly, this podcast has been good for each of us to just have the opportunity to reflect. We hope that it's been helpful to you. I know we have talked about some pretty heavy uh, and difficult things. And honestly, that's appropriate because we've experienced a really difficult time uh, in in the history of our nation. I mean, this, this week is going to be one that we remember January 6th is going to be a date that we, that we remember and talk about for a long time. But even having said all that, you know, I think back to what, uh, what Lindsay said, as we were just having this conversation about hope and about optimism and, and truthfully, you know, as a person who's committed to Jesus and to the gospel, there's always reason for optimism, but, but even looking more temporally as an American, I really do believe that the, the, the fundamental, aspects of our nation and our body politic are strong. I am optimistic that brighter days are ahead, but th that's not something that you can take for granted. And so uh, while there is so much to be concerned about, I think the biggest thing that we can do as we're focused on healing and moving forward is to be focused on what we can do as individuals and what we can do as the church and as local churches to just try to foster uh, the kind of character and the kind of environment in our churches and, and among our people that is going to bring light and not heat, that is going to bring peace and not wrath or discord, 
I think there's so much uh, that that we can do, and and we can start with I mentioned earlier some really really simple things. Christians are the people of God. We belong to Christ. We should be a people of the truth. We should not hide from the truth, whether we like things that are true or not. We should not fear to acknowledge them. And that's what Dr. Moore said in his piece that you can find at TGC, which was so good. And then at the same time, I would say just be a person who's committed to loving your neighbor. And as Jesus is telling the telling us the parable of the Good Samaritan, the, the question that he like specifically is aiming at, he says, and, and the response is, and who is my neighbor? That's the wrong question. The, the question is not, who do I have to love? The question is, who do I have the opportunity to love? And so as Americans, as Christians, we desperately want to see better and brighter days ahead. And so much of that can happen is if, if people who are trusting in Jesus will do what they can to, instead of running to extremes or seeking to offer hot takes or inflame passions, if we would be the kind of people who can have a steady confidence in Jesus, that we can we can make our case, we can believe, we can hold fast to our beliefs, whether they are our theological beliefs or our political beliefs, but we can, as the people of God, keep the main thing the main thing, that we can recognize that politics are always penultimate. They're, they're never ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. His kingdom is forever. He is coming back to reign. And because of that, we can live better. We can love our neighbors. We can be the people that Jesus tells us to be if we keep our priorities in the right place. And so that's my that's my great encouragement to you. I hope it's helpful. Uh, we are really, really grateful for you joining us today. We um, look forward to being back next week with more content. And so thanks so much for listening, but for Brent and Lindsay and myself, and we hope that we have Lindsay with us next week, but you know, it may not happen. So pray for her and her family as they are expecting the birth of their next child. Thank you so much for listening, and we really look forward to seeing you next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.